0: I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning. Welcome, happy sunny Sunday, Shavua Tov. Tov, nice to see everybody, I have some more good news, Baruch Hashem, My, our daughter had a baby boy, thank God, yeah. Thank you, wow, you are busy with the Sibcha. Baruch Hashem, anyway, she went for, she went after Shabbat, uh, and uh, thank God. Everything was went well. We were just a little surprised because I do Thank you. She has three boys, and her son was such a with a, such a straight face. You know, kept telling us it's a girl, it's a girl. That he knows what it is. She told him blah blah blah. But <laughs> thank God, she's going for a hockey team. So we'll we'll see how 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 it goes from there. Anyway, nice to see everybody this morning. Chodesh tov. And, uh, this class is dedicated to Chanah Bat Sheva Bat Bat Yochaved that she should uh, have a refuah Shalema from a surgery she's having, and David Svi Ben Sutol he should have a refuah Shalema, and everybody else in the city and beyond that needs a refuah. Shmuel uh, Yosef Ben Devora and Chaim Binyamin Chaim Ben Zelda and all of those who need a refuah. Okay, so we are beginning a new uh, bracha today. It's the, the 12th bracha. It comes after the bracha of the judges, of restoring the judges of old, like we spoke about last week. And this is a very interesting bracha, because as you know, there are two names for this prayer. The first is the Amida which comes from the word La'amod, to stand, because this is a prayer where we stand in front of God. But the more common name that we use is the Shemona Esrei. And Shemona Esrei, of course, refers to the number of blessings in this prayer, which is 18. And yet, from the beginning, we mentioned that this bracha actually has 19 blessings in it. So this bracha that we're going to do today is the bracha that was added. It was added 500 years after the Anshei Knesset the members of the great assembly who, who through Ruach HaKodesh, through divine inspiration, um, composed the Shemona Esrig prayer when the Jews had gone out to exile and had come back and their ability to pray again was very um, poor Many of them didn't even know the Hebrew language anymore after having been in other places. And um, anyway, 500 years after that time, which is basically around the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. uh, Or some say it was between the destruction between the First and the Second Temple. But in around that time period, this bracha was added to the Shemona Eswe. And we're going to see why it was added. Okay, Um, so basically it was added in response to the threats that were made upon the tradition, our Jewish religion, by heretics of the time. Okay, this was the time period when we had Jewish sects like the Sadducees or the Tzedukim, we call them in Hebrew, the Bothusians, the Essenes. And the early Christians, many of whom were Jews, they were all Jews, the early Christians were all Jews, eventually Rome adopted the Christian religion, but the beginnings of Christianity were people who split off from Judaism. And they were all heretical Jews in all of these different sects. Um, Just to tell you a little more about them. So the Bothusians were a Jewish sect sect that flourished before the destruction of the second temple. They denied the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the dead. They lived lives of luxury. They were among the aristocratic of the Jews and they ridiculed piety and the asceticism of the Pharisees who were considered to be, you know, the ultra-Orthodox, we would call them today, the, you know, staunchly observant Jews. Um, Now, some of them, some of them say that they are the same as the Essenes, who were a Dead Sea sect, who also had no belief in the written or oral Torah, specifically the oral law. And, um, okay, the Tzadukim also lived during the Second Temple period, they rejected the oral Torah, they were actually in charge of the temple at that time. And they um, were basically the go-betweens between the Jews and the Romans. And um, Josephus writes about them. He said they didn't believe in fate. They believed that God can do no evil. They believed that man has free will. So they got some things right. But they didn't believe that there was any kind of reward or punishment after death or penalties after death. And, of course, they believed in no afterlife. And many of these uh, sects, you know, were informers and made life very difficult for the Jews of that time. Um, so they used their considerable political power to harshly oppress observant Jews and slander them to the Roman government. Many thousands of Jews were tortured and died because of these split-offs, these Jews who turned their back on Judaism. You know, we always say that as bad as our enemies are among the goyim, there's nothing worse than a self-hating Jew or a Jew who casts himself outside of the community and then uses his power to hurt us. And this is what they did. So these were early Christians. Uh, The early Christians were Jews who broke away from the Torah and the Jewish tradition. They became humanists. They no longer believed that the mitzvot were binding. As we know, the early Christians said that, you know, once upon a time, God wanted us to do all these mitzvot, but now they're no longer relevant or he doesn't, he's changed, whatever, he's changed his mind. And we don't have to keep all of these mitzvot. They're outdated, they're irrelevant, and they're not necessarily uh, created by God. Um, So they reinterpreted the prophets to prove uh, their new religion of Christianity. And they tried very hard to lure, lure Jews away from their faith. Much as we have today, organizations like Jews for Jesus, who worked very hard to, um, you know, save Jews. I have a personal story about this. Growing up in St. Catharines, in my day, we actually used to say morning prayers in in public school. And we had to sing all kinds of songs about Jesus. And if you've ever heard Jewish comedians who came from small towns do their bit, you know, they'll talk about how the Jewish kids wouldn't say his name, right? and and, you know you'd sing the whole song but you'd never say his name because you know you just didn't know what might happen to you if you said his name and um, you know you'd sort of pass it down from we only went up to grade five in the school I was in you pass it down to the Jewish kids all the way down you know in morning uh, ceremonies to let them know not to say the name. Meanwhile my best friend who lived next door to me was a Baptist, a Bible-thumping Baptist. And from very young age, we were discussing theology. And I don't know how old I was, maybe six. And that's when she informed me that, you know, if I don't believe the way she believes, I'm going the other way. You know, I'm going to hell. So we would have these kind of discussions. And I would say, you mean, you mean Jews who died in the Holocaust are going to hell, but the people who killed them are going to heaven? And she'd say, "Yep, yeah, that's, that's, that's the way it is, you know? So I'd say, well, if that, you know, if that's your God, I don't want to believe him in, in, in him anyway. But she was always having programming at her house. And we basically lived in each other's houses. And I remember one day she was trying to get me to come to some children's program in her house. And she told me that the guy who's leading it used to be a Jew, you know? So I was I was quite, uh, you know, shocked by that. And, and another time, my sister and I accompanied her to some program in the church. Don't tell anybody this, Robinson Vale in the church. And I still remember that at the end, people were getting up and telling their stories about how their lives had changed because they had taken on the religion. And I remember leaning over to my sister and saying, should we go up too? Do you think they'll give us a candy or something good like that? Is it worth it? it?" But we didn't. Don't worry. When my father found out my mother was sending us there, he went absolutely crazy on her. I think she just wanted to get us out of the house. She wasn't really thinking beyond that. Um, But anyway, it's alive and well. And um, unfortunately, even today, many Jews lose their way because of people who are praying upon us and believe that they're saving our souls and this is the way it was back then but it was very very vicious and as I said thousands of Jews lost their lives because of it so who was this first of all let me read the prayer to you okay if everybody has it in their art scroll or whichever sitter you're using it's the 12th prayer and it in Hebrew, it says, "V'lamal shinim al and for slanderers, let there be no hope. "V'chol harishak eregetoyveid," and may all wickedness perish in an instant. "V'chol oyevecha mehera yikaretu," and may all your enemies be cut down speedily. "V'hazedi meherad te'akir uteshaber utemager v'tachnia bimhera v'yameinu." May you speedily uproot, smash, cast down, and humble the wanton sinners, speedily in our days, Baruch Ata Hashem, blessed are you Hashem, who breaks enemies and humbles wanton sinners. Okay, so we're going to look a little bit more closely at this prayer. First of all, who was the prayer composed by? Oh, I just want to also mention that this bracha had many, many versions. It was changed over and over again throughout the years because we were always worried about censorship. Originally, the prayer said, the meaning, and all of the heretics. Now, the Sephardim still use that word meaning, but the Ashkenazim afraid because of the church and everything else. Change the name because the word meaning actually stands for is an acronym for Mamine Yeshu Notzri. For those who are believers in Yeshu, which is Jesus's Hebrew name, the Notzri, the Nazarene. Notzri in Hebrew mean Christians, but it comes from the word Nazarene. So they changed that. It was a They were afraid, so they changed some of the words, as I said, over and over again. So there were two threats that these meaning, these believers and these other sects were to the Jewish people. Number one, they were a threat to them spiritually by confusing them and pulling them away from Judaism. And secondly, physically, as I said, through slander to the non-Jewish authorities, the Jewish lives were physically in danger. So Rabban Gamliel, who was the leader of the Jewish people at this time, at the destru- after the destruction of the second temple, was looking for the right person to compose a prayer against these heretics, against these slanderers. And who did he choose? So he chose a man known by the name of Shmuel HaKatan. And of course, Shmuel, the little one, is what this name meant. And it was a description of his humility. And one of the things, or one of the main things that Shmuel HaKatan was famous for saying, if you've ever read Pirkei Avot and the Mishnahs in Pirkei Avot, we often say, you know, this rabbi used to say, and you know, what does that mean, he used to say? He probably said a lot of things. But the, uh, the idea there is that this saying became a part of him because this is what he was famous for. This, what he, this was what he was, became known for. So Shmuel HaKatan also had something that he used to say. He was known by the aphorism, which comes from Mishle, that when your enemies fall, do not rejoice. And he didn't just say this, but he lived by it. So when he wrote this prayer that was added into the Shemona Esrei, he wrote it with the intention of ridding the world of evil. And his intentions were pure and altruistic, without any personal motives to taint it. He had a pure love for uh, his people, a concern for their safety, and a desire to protect their faith. And because he was known for his humility, um, Rabbi Gamliel II of that time felt that he was the one to be able to write this into the prayer because humility, as we said, is a prerequisite for prayer. Uh, Another idea here is that, um, again, why is this bracha number 12? So one of the reasons here is that because we're praying for the eradication of traitors and heretics to protect the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 also refers to the constellations, the 12 months of the year, and 12 recalls the essential bond between every Jew and his people. Now we know that 10 of the tribes were lost to the Jewish people from their own misdeeds. But in future times, we're told that there, there will be those from the 10 tribes who will do tshuva and will return to our people. Okay. Just a little bit about the Jewish attitude or perspective on evil on wicked people, on evil in the world. We're coming up to the holiday of Purim. So we're going to, this is going to just shed some light on how Jews look at uh, the people who are out to get us, so to speak, throughout history. So you're probably all familiar with the idea, the Medrash that says that when the Jews, when when the Yamsuf, when the Red Sea split, for the jewish people and the egyptians came in after us and began drowning in the sea the angels wanted to sing shira the angels wanted to celebrate and god literally hushes them up and he says how dare you sing right while my handiwork is drowning how could you possibly want to sing So God is not happy or pleased when he has to punish those who don't return, who don't recognize the misdeeds of their ways. The question is, why were the Jews allowed to sing? So the Jewish response to what happened at the sea, their song came as a gratitude, as a thanks for being saved, not in response to their joy at seeing the wicked uh, decimated. And we know this because, you know, we know that at Pesach time, we fill up our cups and then we take out for each of the makot, for each of the plagues, we take out a drop of wine. And of course, this is symbolic. One of the the, um, reasons for this is this is symbolic of the idea that Our cup cannot be full when we have to remove, we have to remove it um, just by virtue of the fact that there are people in the world that continue to do evil. Our cup cannot be full at the destruction of our enemies because of the destruction of our enemies. So this is a very Jewish idea. So many people say that this bracha is not a call for these people to die, because the Jewish response is, rather than die, we would rather they do tshuva and desist from evil. It's not a Jewish idea to pray for people to die. We would rather the wicked do tshuva. Okay. Okay. So there's a famous story in the Gemara based on this idea that wickedness should perish in an instant, the that the Vilna Gaon writes about from the Talmud in Brachas 10a. So there was a famous rabbi named Rabbi Meir, and he was really, he had a whole bunch of thugs in his neighborhood that were really causing him a lot of tsar and vexing his spirit. And he wanted to pray for their death. But his wife, the famous brewery, asked him, how can you justify such a prayer? It says in Tehillim, Itamu min that may sins be eliminated from the earth. It doesn't say may sinners be eliminated. So we shouldn't hope that our sinners be struck down, but that rather that they should be inspired to do tshuva. Rabbi Meir accepts his wife's argument and his request was granted. So again, the idea is we want to eradicate the sins and not the sinners. And that's what this prayer is coming to express. Jewish people don't like not only to pray for people to die, we don't do such a thing. We don't like to fight. We don't like to have to destroy other people physically. Although we have laws in the Torah that are mitzvot, that tell us at certain stages and times and peoples that we are, we we have a mitzvah to destroy. It's not something that we do on our own. It's only when it's commanded by God. And I just want to give you a few examples of this, of why we we shrink from having to become uh, violent or, um, you know, go on the offensive. So, Yaakov is afraid to meet Asub if we go back to that parsh, if you remember. And one of the reasons that's given is because he's afraid he may have to kill him. Now, on the one hand, you'd say, wouldn't that be good? It would be great if he would kill him, because who came from Asub? Haman. Haman came from Asav. We would have gotten rid of a lot of bad guys throughout our history had Yaakov done the deed. And yet... The idea in Judaism is that killing leaves an effect on a person. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Yaakov didn't want to do this. Now, it's interesting because um, my husband was, we were, I was talking about this with my husband. He was saying, that's why, by the way, David HaMelech was not allowed to build the Beit right. David HaMelech, Julie, can you um, mute yourself, please? David HaMelech. Sure. Um, had spent much of his life, if you read through Tehillim, fighting wars, and he had much blood on his hands. And because he was a warrior, um, he wasn't allowed to build the Beit HaMikdash. That was going to be left to his son, Shlomo HaMelech. But the idea is, is that when you kill, it changes you. There's an interesting halacha that Jews had a mitzvah to destroy cities of idol worships. They're called Ir Hanidcha. And the Chafetz Chaim said that Hashem gave a special bracha together with that mitzvah that wouldn't make the Jewish people cruel and merciless, which is a natural result of killing others. And that reminded me, of course, of the famous quote by Golda Meir, and I'm sure many of you have heard it. She once said, I don't remember after which war, but she said, you know, I might be able one day to forgive The our enemies for having killed us, but I could never ever forgive them for having made us into killers. So very succinctly, she she um, summarizes the Jewish posture on violence in general. So there's a halacha that even if we have to execute a criminal, it has to be done with dignity and compassion. And the example that they bring for this actually is uh, with Yosef and his brothers. In chapter 42, passage 20, the brothers say to each other when things are starting to go wrong for them, right? Yosef is in power. They still don't know Yosef is their brother. He's making life very difficult for them. And they say to each other, not knowing that he understands them, indeed, we are guilty concerning our brother. Inasmuch as we saw his heartfelt anguish when he pleaded with us, and we did not listen. This is why this anguish has come upon us. So there's an opinion here that says it wasn't that the brothers were sorry that they had to remove Yosef. Because as I said in other classes, they felt they were doing a mitzvah. They felt that just like Avraham had a Yishmael, and Yitzchak had an Esau, that Yose was possibly the bad seed in their family based on his arrogance, on his dreams, on, you know, his tattletaling, all of the different ways that the, uh, that they described the brothers coming to hate him, the favoritism that his father showed him. So they never felt badly about what they did, but they felt bad Um that they, they felt all of the bad things that were happening to them was perhaps because they didn't have enough compassion even while they were carrying out what they had to do. That they'd become hard-hearted, that their hearts had turned to stone. Okay, so this prayer that we're saying is also directed toward Amalek in each generation. So who is Amalek? Okay, um, so Haman in the Purim story comes from Amalek. I'm not sure of, I think it goes like this. I think asaph had a son named Eliphaz. Eliphaz had a son named Amalek. And Amalek eventually has Haman, okay? And Amalek, the writings teach us, their sole detra, their only reason, For being in this world, their their, their common goal is the eradication of the Jewish people. That is what they live for. The same way that the Jewish people are called the first in terms of goodness in the world, Amalek are called the first in terms of evil in this world. And it's described even as if Amalek has a hand on God's throne and is trying to pull God off of it right? And of course, we don't know who this nation is anymore. Today, there was such a nation, it was the same nation that attacked us. As soon as we left Egypt, when the entire world was standing in awe of the Jewish people, they came from behind and attacked us. They cooled off the bathtub. They didn't mind getting scalded as long as they would so doubt in the minds of those around that maybe this God isn't so great. Maybe he isn't real. Maybe he doesn't protect the Jewish people. And interestingly, the word Amalek, the numerology, uh, the gematria of the word Amalek is the same as the word Safek doubt. Because that's the role of Amalek. He sows the seeds of doubt. Maybe this Jewish people isn't all that they're cracked up to be. Maybe God isn't really their God. Maybe they're, you know, he's he can't protect them, etc. And this is what Haman himself does in the Purim story. Basically, um, today we don't know who who Amalek are, but we certainly know that there are people who are their spiritual heirs. People like Hitler, Yamach Shemo, people like Arafat, people who we have even today in Iran, whose sole purpose or on the top of their list is the death of Jews and the destruction of the state of Israel. And so we still they still live and breathe among us. Now it's interesting. Next week, we're all going to go to Shua, God willing. Somehow they'll figure that out. And uh, we have a mitzvah to listen to the passage read called Parshas Zachor, where we have a mitzvah to remember what Amalek did to us and not forget. And it's interesting that we don't say a bracha before doing this mitzvah. Now, why don't we say a bracha? We usually would say a bracha. So the answer given, or one explanation is, is that um, we never say a brach on the destruction of human beings, no matter how evil they are, because even Amalek can do tshuva. so the prayer goes on and it discusses another aspect of people who are so to speak against us and the, these people are people who um desire our spiritual destruction even today, who create false ideologies and movements to bring Jews away from the authentic Jewish traditions. Now we say that people who follow these groups are not considered to be sinners because in some ways they're innocent. They don't know any better. But the people who create these ideologies and lead them are considered to be true heretics and people who are leading the Jewish people astray. People who see Torah as irrelevant and outdated, those leaders who suggest that perhaps the Ten Commandments are just suggestions and not necessarily commandments, they're just the Ten Suggestions, right? Or question the whole existence of God. Unfortunately, we have rabbis and of all types today among the Jewish community who don't even necessarily have to believe in God to leave their communities. Or who can say things that God can't control evil, that it's beyond him, right? And put out kinds of heretical views. Or of course, Jews for Jesus, which I once heard an incredible um, speech about that, which I never really forgot, which was that the Christians finally got smart instead of telling Jews, which they have been doing for thousands of years, telling us to convert or die. They got much smarter by saying, you don't have to be Christian. You can stay Jewish. You can stay Jewish. As a matter of fact, you know, he was a Jew. So it's even better that you're Jewish. But what you need to do is you just have to add on to your Jewishness right you continue eating your bagels and cream cheese continue saying oy you know you can even come to shul on saturday right we're not going to make you change we don't want you to be christian we want you to be jews that are complete and this was so brilliant because no longer were they trying to kill us physically but now they were killing us with kindness and with a very intelligent way of saying we're not asking you to change we're just asking you to have a fuller more complete life and of course so many jews who enter into this trap know so little about their own jewish identity that they're easy targets for the messianics exactly and many of these places are being led by jews right because jews always rise to the top no matter what it is, whether it's the worst or the best, that's the nature of us. We always want to get to the top. Now, it's just an interesting idea. I don't know how many of you know this, but today we have a halachic term for most Jews today who do not follow the Torah, okay? Except for the ones who are leading Jews astray, those who follow them and basically all the Jews today in this generation are called Tino Kshanishba. I'm not sure how many of you have heard of this, but it's a halachic term describing the fact that most Jews leave Judaism today not because of what they know, but unfortunately, as Rav Noach Weinberg would say, because of what they don't know. It's as if they have this treasure under their bed, but instead of looking under their bed or like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, instead of looking in your own home, in your own backyard, Jews wander and stray after all kinds of isms, after all kinds of cults, after all kinds of different ideologies that promise some kind of transcendent or uh, utopian vision of the world. Communism led thousands and thousands of Jews away from their religion. Socialism the same. Um, Jews are always taken in by these utopia visions. And because of it today, too, we are called Tenoch which literally means that we were kidnapped by Gentiles. It's as if every Jew was raised in a non-Jewish home and really has no clue about the treasure that's right under their bed and is busy wandering after other things. And so we do not, God does not look at the Jewish people today as doing things purposefully, but rather, it's not out of what they know again, but of what they don't know. And this can happen even if you grew up in a religious home, you could still be called a Tenoch shanishba. Even if you went to day schools, you could still be called a Tenoch shanishba because if it wasn't taught to you properly... If you weren't able to absorb it for whatever reason, you had a Rebbe who hit you or whatever it was, which they claim, you know, Jesus had and uh, Trotsky had and people who went off and developed other movements through them, whatever, not not that they're not uh, libel, But um, the point is, is that many people fall under this category. Okay. Okay, just a few more examples of of episodes in Jewish history where uh, the Jewish people were exonerated for showing too much violence. Everybody knows about Shimon and Levi, right? Shimon and Levi, after the rape and kidnap of their sister, Dina, they go and wipe out the whole city of Shechem and Yaakov takes them to task for that. And it was considered that their anger got the best of them. Actually, the tribe of Levi, it says, ends up becoming teachers of little children because Chinuch, educating others, is the opposite of violence. Then, there we, then we have the story of Pinchas, right? Pinchas who reacted again to something horrific that was happening among the Jewish people, immorality, and he kills the, uh, those that are involved. And yet God says about him that he did this properly, that he was zealous for God, that there was no impurity or taint of his own um, bias involved, but rather it was a pure act. And of course, he's made into a kohen. So hating other Jews or, you know, feeling outraged by injustice or by those who are going against God is a is a um, holy feeling and yet it has to be tempered by compassion and the realization that sometimes our own hatreds and our own biases and prejudices can get involved and so it's a very tricky thing and we have to be very careful with it okay So when we say all the evil again should be destroyed in a moment, we're saying the evil and not the evil doers. In the Rosh Hashanah davening, we say that in the future when Mashiach comes, evil is going to evaporate like smoke. There's a whole idea about evil being an illusion, that evil doesn't have anything real to it. Evil doesn't go on after this world. I mean, we have Gehenna, but that's like a waiting pe- period until we get back to where we're supposed to be, except for the really wicked, who are completely nullified and disappear because evil is not real. You know, Rav Hornberg, Weinberg, I'm sure he has a source that used to say, you should laugh at evil because it doesn't have realness. Part of evil, of course, is so that we have free will, so that we have choice, Secondly, unfortunately, are as they say about Haman, when he removed his ring, when Achashverosh removed his ring and basically gave Haman the go-ahead to destroy the Jews, what he did for us was the greatest thing because it caused us to turn back to God. And unfortunately, the evil and the wicked in the world are very often the kick that the Jewish people get to go back to their mission in this world and to do what they're supposed to do. And it's almost as if God created in the collective unconscious of the non-Jews to remind us of our mission, that when we get too close, when we get too comfortable, when we become more German than the Germans, when we become more Persian than the Persians, wherever we are, when we rise to the top and we become accepted, As my father always used to say, it's not hate that kills the Jews, it's love that kills the Jews. And when they love us, we start to forget who we are. And God always sends somebody to come and remind us. And even though, of course, they are responsible for their deeds and they will pay for them, because every person chooses the role they want to play in the history of the world and the story of mankind, Still, it's built into the universe that Esav sonet at Yaakov, Esav hates Yaakov, that there will be this hatred that will keep us on the, uh, in line, that will keep the Jewish people in line. Because, of course, we know that God promises in the Torah that there will always be a remnant of the Jewish people that will continue till the end of time, even as we lose so many along the long road. To Mashiach, so hold on tight, everybody. We're almost there. Okay. So, the more you love Hashem, the more you hate evil, as it says in Tehillim ninety-seven, pasuk ten. It says, Oh Hashem sin Urah, lovers of Hashem hate evil." He preserves the souls of his pious ones from the hand of the wicked. He saves them. So of course, the more we love Hashem, the more we hate those things in the world that make Hashem opaque, difficult to see, right? That try to bring Hashem down, that try to um, distort God's teachings, and take the Jewish people away from their true mission in this world. I know I've said this before, but I was once, I used to teach a lot of Russian Jews in Manhattan Beach, Brooklyn, because it's a very Russian neighborhood. And I was once explaining that the, the name of God, yud heh represents hayah the the idea that God is, that God was, God is, and that he will always be. And one of my... Um, Students gasped and she said, that's what they taught us to think every time we said the word, the name Lenin. Whenever we said Lenin, we had to think he was, he is, and he will always be. So this is the uh, depth to which false ideologies attempt to replace God with some other idea that takes the world down and brings the Jews to a path that has a dead end, literally. Okay. Um. okay. When we talk about uprooting, shattering, and disintegrating evil, which is in this bracha, right? We say uh, to a uh, uh, care, to Shaber, to magir. Right. This means uprooting, shattering, shattering, and disintegrating evil. There's an idea that it's not talking about destroying it, but rather subduing it and using it in the service of God and his purposes. In other words, taking evil and turning it into good. Now, this is a very Jewish idea also. In the Shema prayer, we say we have to love Hashem. Bechole vavicham. Right? And for those of you who know, the word for heart is the word lave. So the question that the rabbis ask on this word is why does it have two vavs in it? it sh- sorry, two vets. Levavachat. It should say lavechat, that you should love God with your heart. So the answer that the rabbis give is that it's referring to both of your hearts, meaning your two inclinations. You have a yetzir tov. Right, the desire to do good, the desire to do God's will, the desire to follow His Torah, but you also have a yechsher hara, the desire to say, "Don't tell me what to do. I'll do it the way I want it. I know better." Or literally, those character traits that could be very negative, right? For example, David Amelech was born red as was asaph he was born under the star of mars under the constellation of mars so he just naturally had a love of blood so to speak so the torah teaches us if you're born with such an inclination you can either use it in a negative way to become a murderer as asaph did his greatest you know play was to go out and kill people and kill he was a hunter of people as well. Or you can use this same bloodthirstiness to become a shoichet, right? To be a butcher, to give Jews kosher meat and chicken for their Shabbos tables. So this idea is, is that we don't eradicate it unless it's completely, I, I mean, the truth is, is even in future times, we say that Asev is going to return that all of the evil in the world will return to the side of good and those that don't will simply disappear. Like we said, evil will go up like smoke. It will just become a complete, uh, completely annulled and void, spiritually extinguished. Okay, but as it is now, the idea is that we can take the bad and we can use it in the service of God. And when we say this prayer, we're supposed to have in mind our own Yetzer Hara, which is our deadliest enemy, and pray that Hashem should help us overcome our adversary and release us from its lethal grip. The Talmud teaches that the Yetzer Hara manifests itself in many different ways, and it's called by a variety of names, seven in all. God called it evil. Moses calls it stubbornness of heart. David called it impure. Shlomo Hamelech, King Solomon, called it enemy. Isaiah called it stumbling block. Ezekiel called it heart of stone. Very often God says, I want you to remove your hearts of stone and return, I will return to you a heart of flesh, right? And Joel, Yoel, the prophet Yoel called it hidden one. Sometimes the Hara causes us to be cold, insensitive and indifferent, both to the will of Hashem and to the needs of our fellow man. Our hearts become like hard rock which must be smashed and ground into fine sand. Or the Yetzirah can cause the opposite effect. It can ignite our hearts with flaming passions and lusts. In that case, advises the Talmud, the evil impulse, the Yetzirah is like a red hot iron, which must explode in order to dissipate its intense heat. When we recite these words of the Amida, it's an appropriate auspicious time to ask Hashem to protect us from our own deadliest enemy, the Yetzir Hara. We pray that Hashem should strengthen us to overcome our adversary and release us from his lethal grip. As I've quoted before from Masilas Yisharim, The Path of Our Just, written uh, written by uh, Moshe Chaim Lutzato, You know, he talks about at the beginning of the book that uh, people who are coming back from war, soldiers who are coming back from war, all bedraggled and tired and exhausted and worn out. And he says to them, you know, you think that you've finished fighting? You think you fought the big war? Well, you haven't even really begun because the bigger war is the war that's taking place inside of you all the time, right? And every time you defeat it, it gets stronger. And every time you make gains and you get more territory, it becomes, it, 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 it moves back and creates more space, so to speak, of territory that has to be won. So it's only the beginning. Okay. And the last bracha in this is Baruch Ata Hashem. Blessed are you Hashem. Sorry, I just want to read it in English. Who breaks enemies and humbles wanton sinners. So enemies, again, are heretics in this prayer who abandon Judaism and make every effort to lead other Jews astray. Wanton sinners, however, are not enemies of our faith, but rather captives of their Yetzir Hara. And the way that these kind of people do tshuva is when Hashem humbles them. When they're humbled, when we're humbled, when we meet with um, difficulties in our lives, very often it subdues our Yetzir Hara, Right? If a wealthy, arrogant person suddenly loses all his money, God forbid, Loa Lenu, it certainly creates, after the anger and wonder, a certain humility that perhaps was lacking. You know, when, God forbid, we experience any kind of illness, right, when we can't do what we normally did, just Aging itself is meant to subdue our overtowering arrogance and create humility if we can't you know figure out how to how to how to access it ourselves. Oh no, don't tell me. Um, so who was this final bracha recited by? It was recited by the angels when they saw the Egyptians drowning at the Yamsuf, at the Red Sea. So the enemies here in this last bracha, who breaks enemies refers to the Egyptian army and the wanton sinners, you'll be surprised to know, the commentary say refers to Paro himself, who actually was spared and did not die at the Red Sea, but rather we're told, He became humbled when he saw the total decimation of his mighty army, the mightiest army in the world at that time. And he actually did shuva. And there are commentators that say that he became the king of Nineveh in the Yonah story. If you know the Yonah story, the Haftorah that we read on Yom Kippur. Yona has to go to this place called Ninveh and tell them to do tshuva. And Paro is, and they do, the whole city, the whole country does. And um, Paro, we're told, um, is the one who becomes humble and contrite and repents and now describes the wonders of God to the world based on what he witnesses, what, what he witnessed at the Red Sea. I once read actually that Paro stands at the entrance to Gehenna, in the next world to hell. He stands there, and as people enter, he says, "Why didn't you learn from me? Why didn't you take heed from my mistakes?" And he's there to remind us of our folly. Okay. Um, One last idea before we end. So the Shemona asray, as you know, originally had 18 blessings. And the 18 blessings correspond to the 18 times that Hashem's name is mentioned in the Shema prayer. There's another prayer we say in the morning devonim, Yehi Chavod, for those of you who know it, that also has Hashem's name mentioned 18 times. Um, So they say that this 19th bracha, which was added, corresponds to the name, to the word echad that we say in the Shema prayer, because this prayer was composed and written in response to the tremendous threat that the Jewish people were experiencing at that time of heretics and traitors, which were running the temple at the time. I mean, if you Google and read about who these sects were and how powerful they were. They were the aristocracy of the Jewish people. They were the wealthy, they lived lives of luxury. Um, Many of them have become Hellenists in earlier times, still with their foot in Judaism, but very much influenced by the Greeks and then later the Christian uh, philosophy of leaving Judaism behind. The early Christians, as we said, were Jews. And many people were not only killed physically at this time, but spiritually. And so the idea that this bracha corresponds to the word echad in the Shema, which is considered to be the 19th idea about God, is the idea that our purpose in this world as Jews is to bring people to the understanding That there is one God for all of mankind, and it's the same God that created the world, and it's the same God that got involved in history by bringing the Jewish people out of Egypt, and it's the same God that continues to protect and save us, regardless of all the mightiest empires and nations throughout history who have tried to destroy us. And so this prayer has two calls. Number one, to destroy our enemies from without, the non-Jews who hate us, the self-hating Jews who try to destroy us. And of course, to eradicate the enemy within, that place of suffering, that place that Amalek plants in the world, of doubt, of vacillating between our Hara and our Yetzer Atov. And we say this prayer asking that Hashem also strengthen us that any kind of heretical ideas that we carry and that we have through our own biases, through our own experiences in life, that we can um, recognize them and realize them, and that Hashem should purify us as, as, as was the writer of this prayer. Shmuel HaKatan was considered somebody who was so pure and so clear that he was the one chosen to write this bracha. Hey, thank you so much for listening.